Well, if you have your Bibles, you can take them and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, as we continue our series through the book of Colossians, titled Jesus, First Place in Everything. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 24 and read through chapter 2, verse 5. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was giving, given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Verse 27, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, or another way, fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Well, how's ministry going? I'm asking you that. How's ministry going? Because, Christian, that is a question for you. Um, I've, I've been in many situations where... Uh, the, the, the circumstances has required me to answer the question of my call to ministry. So, for example, when I was, when I was candidating here and as I was interviewing with uh, the pastors and deacons, they asked me to share about my, my call to ministry. Uh, what they're referring to is that moment in my life where I sensed uh, the unmistakable call of God that he wanted me to be in full-time vocational ministry. He wanted me to be a pastor, you know, and I could point back to a time, uh, the summer of, I don't know when, but I know it was summer, and I know it was at family camp, I know where I was, I know what I felt, I know what I sensed, and I know what God's call in my life was. You know, but in reality, my call to Christian ministry began the very day I was saved. And if you are a follower of Jesus, that moment in which Jesus came to dwell inside of you through the Holy Spirit was the moment you were called into ministry. Now you may not have been called, God may not have planned for you to be a pastor or to work as a missionary or some other full-time ministry leader or servant, but at that moment, Jesus came to dwell within you through the Holy Spirit. He also gave you a spiritual gift that is to be used as you enter into ministry, I can say that God had an eternal plan for my life. And the moment I was saved, I was entering into another plan, another part of his plan for me. And then the moment he called me to be a pastor, I was entering yet into another chapter, another piece of the puzzle that he had planned for my life. And the same goes for you. 
I would extend the call. If there's, there's any man in here who senses the Lord calling, them, calling him to be a pastor, there is an invitation for that today. But the invitation is for all of you who are Christians in ministry to fulfill your role. So what is ministry? I mean, how do we know when ministry is happening? And here's how Warren Wearsby defined ministry. It says, ministry happens when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels for the glory of God. Ministry happens when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels for the glory of God. Ministry is the application of the spiritual gift you have been given. It's an application of the spiritual resources that God has given to you and to me that he might work through us to serve others. It's your responsibility and it's my responsibility to use the gifts that God has given to us. It's our day in, day out responsibility. That's what ministry is. Um, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, we won't turn there, but after, after listing a number of the different gifts, Paul says, all these gifts are empowered by one in the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you have, you have a spiritual gift. You have a way in which God has specifically wired you to serve his body. And that is your ministry. Paul never ceased to marvel that God would call him to the ministry. And, and in these verses, Paul is describing ministry. And, 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 and he's describing his ministry, but, but the vein of, of what he's talking about applies to you and me. The purposes and the motivations that we find in these verses, yes, while Paul was saying this is what gave me my motivation, my purpose in ministry, it's the same for each Christian. We can look at each one of these things that we're going to look at this morning and draw a straight line to somewhere else in Scripture where we're called to do the same thing in ministry. Paul was called to a specific ministry, but he was not called to a unique ministry. He was called to a specific ministry, and we read about that even in, in these verses, but he was not called to a unique ministry. We are called to be in the ministry as well. We are called to, to, to take up the work of the ministry. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. He said he gave some pastors and apostles and preachers and teachers and evangelists to the church to equip, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So that we all ought to be in this ministry. And so we ought to be like Paul who in Acts chapter 26 verse 19, verse 19 says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I was, not vi I was not disobedient to God's call in my life. Have you been obedient to God's call in your life to take up the work of the ministry, to take up the work of the gospel in your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in the church? Or have you been disobedient? Have you neglected the gift that God has given to you to serve the church and others? Paul gives us four aspects of Christian ministry as we work our way through. And before we dive into the first one, I do want to note that in this passage, Paul gives us four pictures along with each of these aspects. And I'm going to mention them at the front before we start. But first, he gives us this picture of a prisoner, because he was a prisoner in verse 24. The second, he gives us a picture of a steward in verse 25. He gives us the picture of an athlete in chapter 1, verse 29. 
And then he gives us a picture of a military commander in chapter 2, verse 5. Now, I draw these attention to you now to show you that these aspects of ministry are max effort, high responsibility things. They're, they're, they're max effort, high responsibility positions that Paul is going through here. And so as, as being in Christian ministry, all these aspects apply to you and me as well. So four aspects of Christian ministry. Number one, suffering. Suffering. Now I rejoice in my sufferings, Paul says. Some questions about suffering. When is suffering worth it? When is suffering worth it? It was August 23rd, 1305, when a man was hung, disemboweled, separated limb from limb at the order of the English king Edward I. His name... You guessed it. It's William Wallace. And if you know anything from history about William Wallace, William Wallace was one of, the, one of Scotland's greatest national heroes. William Wallace would be the one who in the early years of, of Scotland's struggle to be free from the English, he was the one who led in those early years before he was sentenced to death. Now, if you, in 1995, uh, a feature film was made that had Mel Gibson portraying William Wallace with plenty of creative license, we could say, uh, given in that movie. But if you remember, at the end of the movie, there's a scene where he is given a chance to plea for mercy as, as he's enduring this torturous suffering. And he said, if you just plead for mercy, we'll, we'll just end it quick. And do you remember, do you remember what, uh, if, you, if, you, if you're familiar with the movie, at the end of the movie, instead of crying for mercy and the end of the suffering and pain, he cries for freedom. He cries for freedom. And then, you know, then we have this big, this big dramatic scene of something falling from his hand. And it's just, you know, freedom is the last thing on his mind. From the very beginning to the very end, it was freedom. William Wallace found something not, even, not, not just worth living for and pursuing, but something worth dying for. And that's what Paul found. He found something not just worth living for, but worth dying for. And neither in life nor in death did he sway from the pursuit of what God had called him to do. William Wallace, in life and in death, he did not fall away from the pursuit of freedom for Scotland. Paul, for the sake of the gospel... In life and in death, he did not sway from living and dying for Christ. He found something worth living and dying for. When is suffering worth it? When you found something worth living and dying for, it's worth it when you found Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.20, Paul would say, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This is an aspect of Christian ministry that this, this, he's a prisoner, he's suffering. Why did Paul suffer? He suffered a lot. He, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was deserted and mistreated all throughout his ministry. Yet he says, he says, I rejoice in my suffering. And we see this time and time again throughout the New Testament. I rejoice in my suffering. He was able to rejoice. Why? Because he recognized that he was called to a task that wasn't just worth doing while he was alive, but it was a task worth dying for. That Jesus was worth 
not only living for, but dying for as well. He was fully convinced that God had control over every aspect of his life in every circumstance that he would encounter, and that's what brought him joy. That's what enabled him to press on at all costs. That's what caused him to finish the race that he set out to do because no matter how hard the race was, there was was a goal, there was a prize, there was Jesus Christ. And that's what gave him joy. So why do we suffer? Why Why is Paul suffering? Why do we suffer? Well, we suffer, number one, because the world can't get their hands on Jesus, so it'll do everything it can to get its hands on the church. Jesus is gone at this point. He's still gone. And so since the world can't get their hands on Jesus, they will do whatever it takes to get their hands on Jesus' followers. And Jesus said this is what would happen. He warned the disciples many times, they, they hated me, they're going to hate you. They persecuted me, so they will persecute you. Blessed are you when you're persecuted and hated and people revile you and say all nasty things about you in my name. Rejoice because your Father in heaven sees them. He knows you and he's with you. We have no greater example than Jesus Christ who himself endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. He suffered because, number one, the world can't get his hands on Jesus, get its hands on Jesus so they'll get their hands on us. Number two, he suffered because it helped him better understand the sufferings of Christ. And this is something Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10. Where he says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and, notice this, may share in his sufferings. It was almost like this is something Paul, maybe not, not looking forward to, but just something that Paul was eager to do. Not only do I get to share Jesus, but I get to share Jesus. I get to share his sufferings. Not only am I taking him to others, but the very sufferings of Jesus Christ are going to be mine. It's the vocation of the church to suffer. It's the vocation of the church to suffer with and for Jesus Christ. He also suffered because it developed sympathy in his heart. And this is something he would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, as we abundantly share in Christ's sufferings, so Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And this comfort is what he uses to comfort others. Do you want to touch on this phrase here? Because notice what it says. It says, in the flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Catholics have used this verse to say that this is one of the reasons we go to purgatory. In order to finish paying off for our sins, we go to purgatory. Other people have used this to say, well, this is, this is something in order, for, in order for Christ's suffering on our behalf to be real, we have to suffer on this earth to kind of shore things up. What is Paul talking about? Well, he was not saying that he had to suffer to pay for his own sins. He was not saying that he had to suffer because the death of Jesus Christ was not sufficient to save sinners. As a matter of fact, later in chapter 2, he's going to tell us that the death of Christ was fully sufficient to cancel the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So what is he saying? Very simply, Paul is saying he he is filling up What, when he says I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, he is saying that he is filling up in the suffering that comes with being a Christian. What we've just been talking about. He's saying I'm filling up this this suffering and this persecution that Jesus said would come. It's getting filled up in my life. 
It's going to happen to all who take up their cross and follow Jesus. All Christians will suffer. And if not outwardly, you'll suffer inwardly as a Christian. The fierceness of temptations will cause you to suffer. The anxieties of Christian responsibilities will cause you to suffer. The many doubts and confusions and uncertainties that come into our lives, that will cause you to suffer. As you look to God and you cry out to God. But how can you and I have joy? How can we have joy? Joy is a deep-seated conviction that God is in control. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 8-9, through 9, look at these verses. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted. God hasn't forsaken us. We're struck down. We're not destroyed. You will suffer. Philippians 1.29 is another verse you can look up on your own. But the presence of joy depends on whether or not you really believe God is in control and whether or not you really believe Jesus is worth dying for. So suffering, that's the first aspect. Number two, stewardship. 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 Now the Greek word for stewardship is oikonomia. It literally means house manager. House manager. Now the house manager in ancient times was a servant who was left in charge of the house while the owner went away on business. So it was a position of, that required a lot of trust, there was a lot of responsibility. It wasn't just someone who, who mopped the floors. It was somebody who was entrusted with the property, the, the finances of the owner, while the owner went away on business. And so this steward, this house manager, was responsible for taking care of all of the owner, owner's uh, property and assets and finances while the owner was away. Which brings us to our... our one of, the, one, of the, one of the first keys we need to know to have an effective ministry, and that's humility. It just, it just, that just flows from this word house manager, humility. Paul saw himself as a servant to the church. And I don't want you to, don't go, in verse 25, don't miss the words for you, where he says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. There, there's small words in there. There's a lot of depth to them, and they're, so, they're staples to Paul's ministry. Just like the house manager, he was the house manager for the owner and for the others that worked with it, with the, for, the, for, the, for the owner of the house. So Paul is saying, listen, I am here for you. Uh, just the other day, I don't know if, if you saw or not, just the other day, uh, I think it was Tuesday, I got a phone call from the local newspaper, and they, they wanted to do an a interview uh, on the new pastor in town, and so they wanted to. They asked me a, a number of questions, and if you if you haven't seen the headline, I'll let you go look that up on your own. But it's a good one, uh, and so uh, <laughs> uh, and so they asked me a number of questions about what I was looking forward to in ministry here and all these things. And the last question she asked me um, is: There any final thoughts that you want to leave with the community? And I said, uh, I was I was kind of trying to think here, and I said, uh, I said, well, here's, I said, I'm going to leave you with how I leave the church every Sunday. We're here for you. I'm here for you. 
I want the community to know that Calvary Baptist Church is here for them, and we want them to know who Jesus is, and we want to help them in their spiritual lives in any other way that we can help them. We're here for you. And I, when I, at the end of the service, when I say, we're here for you, when I say, Pastor Matt, Pastor Kyle, and myself, we're here for you, it's because we're here for you, for you. And this, this, ought to be, this ought to be a thing here. Wives to your husbands, husbands to your wives, is it, is it not I'm just here with you, but I'm here for you. Children to your parents. Children, are you, is it mom and dad, I'm here for you. In the church, is it here? Is it, I'm here for you. First Peter chapter four, verse ten. Paul would say, "As each has received a gift, use it. Use it to serve one another as, God, as good stewards of God's varied grace." So there it is. Every Christian is to be a steward of God's varied grace and to use our gifts. Now, stewardship is not. You know, maybe when you're in high school and your parents are gone and, you know, you, they're coming back and you've got to clean the house real quick. And so, you know, you're getting the dishes done and you're, you're vacuuming, you're picking up stuff around the house. So that way, you know, when they get home, you know, they just think you were the most perfect little angel and all this stuff. That's not stewardship. Stewardship is not a, a you know, a quick sweep before mom and dad get home. Stewardship, that's, that's, that's not using your gift, that's undoing your guilt. Stewardship is a, an intense Focus that I'm here to serve and I'm here for you. Another key to effective ministry, not only that we're humble, but that we also, we stick with God's will for our lives. God has not chosen you and he has not chosen me to save the whole world. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have any ambition for ministry. But Paul, he stayed in his lane. You know, look at Paul's ministry. He only went on three missionary journeys and he went basically to the same spot each time. God powerfully worked in his ministry. But he didn't go all, all over the world. As a matter of fact, he didn't go to Coloss- the Colossae. But Paul is effective because he stuck to doing what God called him to do. And that was to make the word of God fully known to the Gentiles. Which is the word, when we see that word mystery in here. I don't know why I pointed it up there. But when we see the word mystery in here, that's what it is. That through this gospel, through Jesus Christ, Gentile and Jews are part of one covenant family. That's the mystery. And then Paul says, this is, my, this is what I'm here to do. I'm here to, to show everybody the word of God, make it fully known. And that became, his, that became his ambition. He wanted to do only God's will, God's way. Nothing else, nothing more, nothing less. So Paul has an ambition to make known to others what God had made known to him. That's, that's stewardship. That's service. He didn't spend all of his time trying to figure out what God hadn't revealed. He remembered Deuteronomy 29, 29. Secret things belong to the Lord. He kept about his work. Now think about how foolish would it be for a steward. You know, the owner's way on, a far away on business and he's doing a business transaction. All of a sudden, his house manager shows up. What are you doing here? Well, he's like, well, I just wanted to know what you were doing. What would, what would the owner say? You don't need to know what I'm doing. I gave you a task, a responsibility. A stewardship at my house over my property and my assets and my finances. What, what's going on there? And that's it. We, we stay in God's lane. Wherever God has you, carry on the ministry, the gospel ministry in that area. And show others Christ. 
all throughout this. It's Christ's afflictions. It's to make the word of God fully known, which is Christ in verse 27. In verse 28 uh, and 29, it's that everyone would be mature in Christ. And then again in uh, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, I want you to reach all the understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Verse 5, he says, I'm rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. I'm not sure if you've really picked up on the theme of the book of Colossians, but it's Christ. Paul's saying all this is about Christ. So these are some of the keys to being an effective steward. Serve in humility, stick with God's will, show others Christ. There's yet a third aspect of ministry. First, we have suffering. Secondly, we have stewardship. And number three, striving. Striving. In chapter 1, verse 28 through chapter 2, verse 3. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And here it is in verse 29 and then in verse 1 of chapter 2. For this I toil, struggling. For I want you to know, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, how great a struggle. It's just the striving. Uh, Actually, the Greek word is agonisomai. It's where we get our word agony. It was used often in the ancient world of, of an athlete. He's striving and toiling and struggling and putting max effort into, into winning the race or winning the wrestling match or whatever other sport he may be playing. So we have this picture of an athlete. And we need to have the mindset of a, if I, if I could say, we need to have the mindset of a spiritual athlete. The late NBA superstar Kobe Bryant was known for his off-season workouts. Monday through Saturday, Kobe Bryant, he'd wake up, he'd spend two hours running, and that included sprints and jogs, and then he'd spend two hours on the basketball court doing a number of different drills and shooting around, and then he would spend two hours in the weight room. Six hours a day, six times a week, for six months during the off-season. If you know anything about Kobe Bryant, you know that it showed up when he got to the field. But this is the, this is the kind of thing. This is the kind of thing we're talking about when we're talking about striving. We're talking about putting max effort into being what God has called me to be. We're talking about be, putting max effort into doing what God wants me to do. We're talking about putting max effort into ministry. You and me. Pastor or not, or not a pastor. Now, no athlete, this kind of goes back to what we're saying, staying in your lane and sticking with God's will, because no athlete can be the best in every sport. There have been people who have tried. There's no one who's really been the best in multiple sports. And so Paul wasn't spreading himself thin. Now, he was putting max effort into what God had called him to do, but he wasn't spreading himself thin. He wanted to proclaim Christ. That's what he says. Him we proclaim, verse 28. Him we proclaim. Christ, the sum and substance of Paul's message. Now think about it. They knew who Christ was, but what is, why, why is Paul struggling so hard that they would know Christ? They're already Christians. I mean, once somebody's a Christian, I mean, you just kind of kind of give up, right? They're kinda, I mean, they're good. They're in the kingdom, you know? Praise the Lord. Just kind of let them go then. Isn't that how it works? Not for Paul. That was like 
Step one was getting them to trust Christ as their Savior, and then the struggle was on. Oh, that we have this mindset. It's not enough for someone to be saved, but we want to struggle for people. That they would know Christ. And he strenuously contended. Notice he says, for everyone. He wants to warn everyone, teach everyone, present everyone mature in Christ. I think, I think the implication there is everyone who came in the scope of his ministry. The unbeliever and the believer. He wanted them to know Christ and then grow in maturity. That's the mindset of a spiritual athlete. The task of the spiritual athlete, we, we, we talked about the word warning and the word teaching. Forgive me for using Greek words, but I think this would, this would click with some of you, uh, a lot of you. Uh, Nutheteo is the Greek word for warning. If you're familiar with the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, which uh, many of you are, Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, it was formerly NANC, 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 I don't know how to pronounce it, N-A-N-C, National Association of Nuthetic Counselors. It's kind of the idea. It's this warning. It's this exhortation. It's kind of a negative word. It's where you're talking to someone who's maybe struggling, they're going down the road of sin, and you're saying, you know, warning. And then you teach. He says he's teaching, teaching Christ as well. And this is something we're called to do in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, where Paul says, and we urge you, brothers, that's everybody, admonish the idol. There's the word, admonish the idol. Those who are, who are being lazy spiritually, admonish them, warn them, exhort them, nutheteo them. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. We're all called to this. This is what we're supposed to warn. Paul wanted them to be fully grown and mature in Christ. Now, this won't happen until we meet Christ uh, at a future time. We're in his presence and we're called into his kingdom. But he wants them to know how to take the biblical principles of his word. That's why it says, uh, with all wisdom. He wants them to have wisdom. He wants them to know how to take the Bible and apply it to day-to-day life because the Bible applies to every single area of your life. It does. It's sufficient, totally, fully sufficient for everything you face in life. Notice Paul's energy drink. You like energy drinks? Pastor Kyle likes energy energy drinks. He's always got a different one. I'm always asking him, like, which one one is it today? They never taste good, but he likes them. Uh... Energy drink. Here's your energy drink. He says, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He wasn't content just to see people saved. He agonized over their maturity. Conversion was just the beginning, but it was God's power at work in him. He worked hard. To accomplish these tasks, and it was God's power working within him to accomplish what God had called him to do. He worked hard. He wasn't lazy. He was not asking grace to do what he was too lazy to do. He was all in. He was all in because he thought, he he wasn't all in because he thought, well, without me, nothing gets done. Like, unless I'm all in on this, God can't accomplish his purposes. No, Paul was all in on ministry because God was all in in him. And God's all in in you as well. 
Paul engaged in the spiritual conflict on behalf of his converts. He had such a deep love for the church. He worked hard for them to have, notice here as we get into chapter 2, verse 2, he wanted them to have encouraged hearts. He wanted them to be knit together in love. He worked so hard for them, over people he didn't even know. We share a common life, and as verse 2 tells us, being knit together in love, Paul was struggling, toiling with the power of God to present people who have encouraged hearts and they have love, unified in love. You know, as a church, we share a common life. As brothers and sisters in Christ, as members of Calvary Baptist Church, we share a common life with love as the basis. We don't divide by age, we don't divide by preferences, we don't divide in this church by social status or anything else. Within the membership of this local church, our differences cannot be turned into divisions. Differences, yes. Look out, I see a lot of different people, different walks of life. It can't be turned into divisions. If, if my wife and I divided every time we had a difference, we'd be in big trouble. She's more of an HGTV person, and I'm more of a no thank you. And, you know, that's a petty difference. Just think about it. If every little difference causes a division... Might as well lock up the church. That's why Jesus prays in John 17. He says, listen, church, it's going to be your love for each other that's going to tell the world that you're my disciples. Crazy. Jesus is saying, no oneness, no witness. And Paul is pointing us to Christ. Again, here in, in verse 3. He says, listen, the, the, the encouraged hearts, the, the love that unifies you guys in verse 3, it's in, in verse, uh, verse 2 and 3, it's all in Christ. It's Christ. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all in him. Which brings us to the last aspect. Number one, suffering. Number two, stewardship. Number three, striving. And number four, Strengthening. Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order in the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now the words good order and firmness, I, I mentioned Paul was talking about, a, a mil, he has this military image here. It's like a general inspecting his troops. And we even kind of go back to verse 2 where he says, I want your hearts to be encouraged. This is the idea here of, of Christian, an aspect of Christian ministry is, is strengthening. He was a general with his troops. He says, I am with you. I mean, what a great example of love, humility, and service. Earlier Paul said, I am for you. And now Paul is saying, I am with you. He felt a, this wasn't just like a, you're in my thoughts, sort of thing, I think happy thoughts of you, like that's a, like some way that, no, he's like, this is, like, I feel a, a real spiritual connection. Like, we share the same identity in the Holy Spirit. And that should be the way it is with all of us. It's like a general who is with his troops. Not a general who's just off and about, has no idea what's going on with his troops. The greatest 
generals, the greatest leaders in American history are often the ones who are known for being with their troops. We also get this, not only is it a general who's with his troops, but a general who's protecting his troops. This is a very direct and practical purpose to Paul's ministry. What he's saying here anyways in verse 4. I say this in order that no one may confuse you or delude you with fine-sounding arguments. Make no doubt about it. Young people, old people alike, there are people out there who want to confuse you about spiritual truth and about sufficiency in Jesus Christ. They're out there. They want to confuse you about the nature of humanity. They want to confuse you about the hope sinners have. They want to confuse you about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And maybe, you know, now maybe we can just put it in common terminology here. You know, it's, it's easy. It's easy and it's dangerous. But it's easy for Christians to be led astray by well-groomed, nice-smiled multimedia presentations. And when it comes to videos on social media, when it comes to videos on YouTube or wherever else, we have to remember the amount of views somebody is getting does not determine value. We can't make a, we can't make a determination and decision on, on who we listen to based purely off their popularity, their charisma, their smile, their hair, their suit, or whatever else. All false systems undermine Christ. So here's the principle. If you can't figure out what a religious teacher believes about Jesus, then they're undermining Jesus. More so, if you can figure out what they're teaching about Jesus and that teaching undermines scripture, they're blaspheming Jesus. If you spend hours listening to somebody and you're not really sure where they fall on Jesus, they're undermining Jesus. That's why we take our stand each and every day on the word of God and we proclaim that Jesus is Lord. We proclaim that salvation is found in no one else for there's no name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. We teach that Jesus is sufficient. He is enough. He is supreme. Settle it in your heart who Jesus is. Husbands, dads, protect your family. Protect your spouse. Protect your church from false teaching and undermining and the undermining of who Jesus is. Paul was strengthening his troops. He was a general with his troops. He was a general protecting his troops. And he was a general even inspecting his troops as we get to the end of verse 5. He says the good order and firmness. The word good order means they were standing at attention. They were, you know, they were good. They were... Uh, they were, they were well-disciplined. They had a disciplined formation. And, and that word uh, uh, firmness means that they were ready for the attacks of Satan. They were ready to go. They were strengthened by grace. They were ready for the onslaught of what Satan would bring to them. Life is short. Satan is real, but Jesus is greater. And so we have to be those who strengthen one another. Like Hebrews chapter 10 says... Let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting the meat together is, is the habit of some, but encouraging, strengthening one another. And all the more as you see the draw, day drawing near. Life is short. Satan is real. Jesus is greater. So are you in the ministry? Do you belong to Jesus? Jesus, who is God in flesh, died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead to secure your salvation. The invitation is that, you can, is that you find life and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. 
and join the ministry. But what about you who belong to Jesus? How's ministry going? Paul in this passage revealed to us he's a suffering prisoner, he's a steward, he's an exhausted athlete, he's a military commander, all for a max effort positions. So I ask again, how's ministry going? Let's pray. Lord, make it our heart's desire to fulfill the ministries that you've given to us. Pray for the, the moms and dads, the co-workers, the bosses, members of the church, neighbors, the brothers and sisters. Lord, may we fulfill your gospel ministry in whatever arena of life that you have put us into. And may we do so for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.